Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 15, 1 Kings chapter 8, the second continuation. Today, with yet another section of 1 Kings chapter 8 that revolves around this temple dedication ceremony and it features King Solomon's magnificent and profound prayer that illuminates a number of God principles. But we're going to need yet another lesson to finish this chapter. Now one of the major themes of Shlomo's prayer is revealed in verse 23 and it is that God's kindness to his worshipers is dependent upon their obedience and devotedness to him. Now such a thought was not out of line with the ancient Middle Eastern mindset about human relationships with their gods so it was rather easy for the Israelites to accept that notion. However, for some reason, Christianity has for centuries developed a doctrine that a believer's behavior, a degree of faithfulness, just doesn't play much of a role in how God deals with, with us. In other words, once we have our salvation, all divinely directed consequences for our sinning and our bad behavior ends. All linkage between our actions and what we can expect in response from God is severed. Ultimately, the thought is that believers have the right to expect nothing but God's mercy and kindness, no matter how far away from God's ways and commands that we might wander, no matter how rebellious we might become. Now, I have on many occasions challenged this dangerous and erroneous doctrine because it's one of the primary reasons, in my estimation, for a steady erosion in the power and victory that was always intended for the church. It's, it's, it's but a common and light-hearted metaphor that gaining salvation in Christ is the equivalent to the purchase of heavenly fire insurance. Now we can kind of silently chuckle at such a thought, but in reality, it's reinforced from most pulpits and thus subconsciously lived out in the lives of believers worldwide. We looked at a at the precise New Testament equivalent of Solomon's statement regarding the conditional nature of God's kindness as we read Romans 11. And there in verse 22, and no matter what Bible version you might have, Paul states to a group of Gentile believers as forthrightly and in context as is possible that we of course remain subject to God's punishments if we choose to be disobedient enough. Romans 11.22 So take a good look at God's kindness and His severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off. On the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. 
pretty plain. To be cut off means to be separated from God at God's choice. However, it doesn't mean that if that separation occurs that it must be permanent. But almost without fail, there will be punishments and dire consequences. The punishments are meant for a twofold purpose. First, as a proper carrying out of God's justice. Second, as a means to drive the rebel back towards harmony with God. So this particular portion of Solomon's prayer naturally is as true today as when he first uttered it. Now another God principle was being addressed beginning in verse 27 when King Shlomo acknowledged that despite the Lord saying that he would dwell in the temple that that Solomon had built for him, it must be that God's concept of dwelling and of the purpose for a temple was not typical of what was universally accepted in the 10th century BC. Rather, God's true home was heaven. And yet, God's earthly presence was obvious, even visible, in this case, in the form of a cloud that literally drove the priests out of the sanctuary building. From the Lord's... Well, the Lord's definition of a temple was in many ways an enormous divergence from what humans of that era imagined. It was thought by one and all that a temple virtually housed and even shut in the gods who chose to reside there. A temple for a god was akin to a bottle that imprisoned a genie. But Solomon realized that for Jehovah and for his worshippers, the temple was merely a place of meeting. And, and, and even that wasn't something that could be well defined. Now while the Torah law had requirements for attendance at the temple on certain occasions, prayers directed from anywhere towards the temple were just as effective as if one were standing in its courtyards. So let's continue in our study of this illuminating prayer and extract all that we can from it. Turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. We're going to start reading at verse 31. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 378. If a person sins against a fellow member of the community and he is made to swear under oath, and he comes and swears before your altar in this house, then here in heaven, act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, so that his way of life devolves on his own head, and vindicating the one who is right, giving him what his righteousness deserves. When your people Israel sin against you, and in consequence are defeated by an enemy, Then if they turn back to you and acknowledge your name and pray and make their plea to you in this house, here in heaven, 
Forgive the sin of your people Israel. Bring them back to the land you gave to their ancestors. When they sin against you, and in consequence the sky is shut so that there is no rain, then if they pray towards this place, acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you have brought them low, here in heaven, forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel since you keep teaching them the good way by which they should live and send down rain on your land which you have given your people as their inheritance. If there is famine in the land or blight, a windstorm, mildew, locusts or shearer worms or if their enemy comes to the land and besieges them in any of their cities, no matter what kind of plague or sickness it is, then regardless of what prayer or plea anyone among all your people Israel makes, for each individual will know what is plaguing his own conscience, and the person spreads out his hands towards this house, here in heaven where you live, and forgive, and act, since you know what is in each one's heart. Give each person what his conduct deserves because you and only you know all human hearts so that they will fear you throughout the time they live in the land you gave our ancestors. Also the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel when he comes from a distant country because of your reputation for they will hear of your great reputation your mighty hand your outstretched arm and when he comes and prays towards this house then here in heaven where you live and act in accordance with everything about which the foreigner is calling to you so that all the peoples of the earth will know your name and fear you as does your people Israel so that they will know that this house which I have built bears your name. If your people go out and fight against their enemy, no matter by which way you send them, and they pray to Adonai towards the city you chose, toward the house I built for your name, then in heaven hear their prayer and plea and uphold their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who doesn't sin, and you are angry with them and hand them over to the enemy so that they carry them off captive to the land of their enemy, whether far away or nearby. Then if they come to their senses in the land where they have been carried away captive, turn back, make their plea to you in the land of those who carried them off captive, saying, We sinned, we acted wrongly, we behaved wickedly, if in the land of their enemies who carried them off captive they return to you with all their heart and being and pray to you towards their own land which you gave to their ancestors toward the city you chose toward the house I have built for your name then in heaven where you live hear their prayer and plea uphold their cause forgive your people who have sinned against you forgive their transgressions which they have committed against you give them compassion in the sight of their captors so that they will show compassion towards them for they are your people your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt out of the flames of the iron furnace may your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel so that you will hear them whenever they cry out to you for you made a distinction between them and all the peoples of the earth by making them your inheritance 
as you said through Moshe, your servant, when you brought our ancestors out of Egypt. Adonai Elohim. We'll stop there. This prayer of Solomon's has been rather general up to now in that we have seen a handful of fundamental God principles spoken that undergird every facet of our relationship with God. But here we have a series of seven specific petitions to the Lord that are of special importance to to Solomon. Now these are quite practical matters and they all express an understanding of the law of Moses as the basis for Israel's existence and Shlomo's rule. Now before I go on, that I hope, I mean I want to say something that I hope will not disappoint or offend any of you. Solomon's prayer, as is the Lord's prayer, a prayer model. It's timeless. It certainly was never intended as something that we just mouth mindlessly. It's not something that we use as though it was kind of a blank form. And when we come to a certain part, we just kind of fill in the blanks with our particular concerns. On the other hand, these prayers, as do all other prayers in the Bible, show us that we are to petition the Lord as specifically as we know how. Among certain denominations and Christian groups, an interesting habit of requesting others to join you in an unspoken request, and at times even for an unidentified person, is put forth. There's not a doubt in my mind that from all scriptural and spiritually rational viewpoints, an unspoken request is no request at all. For his own good reasons, God has made it clear. The God who already knows all things insists that we form our concerns into words and we direct those words in the form of prayerful petitions towards him. The Solomon's first petition in verse 31 concerns oaths and vows that are sworn in the temple and the Lord is being asked to remain as the guarantor of those promises. In fact, this petition is even more specific as it relates to to monetary disputes whereby the appointed judges who hear the evidence also then impose an oath on the accused party. That is, if they're going to maintain their innocence, they must invoke Jehovah's name in a vow that they're blameless. The situation refers to the laws of Exodus 22, 6-12, and Leviticus 5, 21-24. Don't go there, I'm going to quote these for you. Exodus 22, 6-12 says, If a person entrusts a neighbor with money or goods and they are stolen from the trustee's house, then if the thief is found, he must pay double. 
But if the thief is not found, then the trustee must state before God he did not take the person's goods himself. In every case of dispute over ownership, whether of an ox or a donkey, a sheep, clothing, any missing property, when one person says, this is mine, both parties are to come before God. And the one whom God condemns must pay the other one double. If a person trusts a neighbor to look after a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal, and it dies, is injured, or is driven away unseen, then the neighbor's oath before Adonai that he has not taken the goods will settle the matter between them. The owner is to accept it without the neighbor's making restitution. But if it was stolen from the neighbor, he must make restitution to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by an animal, the neighbor must bring it as evidence, and then he doesn't need to make good the loss. In Leviticus 5.21-24, If someone sins and acts perversely against Adonai by dealing falsely with his neighbor in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him by stealing from him, by extorting him, by dealing falsely in regard to a lost object he has found, or by swearing to a lie. If a person commits any of these sins, then if he sinned and is guilty, he is to restore whatever he stole or obtained by extortion, whatever was deposited with him or the lost object which he found or anything about which he swore falsely. He is to restore it in full plus an additional one-fifth. He must return it to the person who owns it on the day he presents his guilt offering. Okay, the the idea is that a person who was summoned to the temple where the court was usually convened out in the courtyard and then denies the accusation against him is forced to swear an oath of innocence because it may be impossible to convict due to a lack of eyewitnesses or evidence. However, God knows the hidden truth. And so, by the accused swearing an oath in God's name, God is being asked to protect His holy name and to be the ultimate judge by punishing the wrongdoer and vindicating the victim, especially if the accused is also a liar. And this punishment will be in the form of divinely ordered consequences as opposed to a humanly imposed sentence. This could amount maybe to an illness, a shortened lifespan, childlessness, failed crops, any sort of thing that could be seen as supernaturally directed towards that person. So the bottom line is that this petition from Solomon is all about societal justice being carried out in accordance with God's laws and commands even if the judges are unable to convict due to the lack of evidence or by falsehoods that are being stated by the parties involved. Now the second prayerful petition in verses 33 and 34 concerns what happens when Israel as a nation is threatened with exile and oppression by a foreign enemy. And the cause of this oppression is that as a nation 
Israel has sinned against God. This is referring to the laws of Leviticus 26.17 and Deuteronomy 28.25. Leviticus 26.17 says, I'll set my face against you. Your enemies will defeat you. Those who hate you will hound you. You will flee when no one is pursuing you. Deuteronomy 28.25 Adonai your God will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will advance on them one way and then flee before them in seven. You will become an object of horror to every kingdom on earth. The thought is that if the nation turns their backs on Yehovah and a large amount of Israelites are hauled off to a foreign land as prisoners, those who remain will see the sin of their nation, go to the temple, pray for forgiveness, and the Lord will hear and show mercy. Then He will deliver them from their conquerors and bring those exiles home. Now what a prophecy is wrapped up in this prayer. And yet, that is because in several places in the Torah and in Joshua and Judges, there is a warning, a clear warning, that in the future it is inevitable that the Israelites will commit national sins. They will be defeated by an enemy and an enemy will carry them off as a result. And that their only remedy is to repent and to seek God. In fact, the modern English hides a tone and context that most of the Israelites would have instantly recognized in this passage. A tone that reminds them of an awesome and terrible time in their distant past. In verse 33 where it says in the complete Jewish Bible that Israel will be defeated in consequence of their national sin. Other Bibles say they will be smitten in consequence. A Hebrew word that we haven't heard in a while is being used. The word is nega. Nega is the Hebrew word that figures prominently in the book of Exodus because it is typically translated to plague. That's right. The various plagues visited upon Egypt and Pharaoh are in Hebrew, nega. So the idea is that God will visit upon His own people the same sorts of supernatural consequences that He visited upon Egypt in consequence of their great national sins against Him. Now, as the modern redeemed of God, many of us are quite concerned with this same prospect. Day by day, as the horrific national sins of our country mount up, whether we agree with our leaders and and those who willingly follow them into these sins or not, we will be and currently are caught up in the consequences. In our era when the globe has seemingly shrunk, national boundaries are dissolving, it may not be that people will be physically and forcibly 
taken from their homeland to another place in consequence of their inequities as what eventually happened to the Israelites. Rather, as our international economic and financial institutions become more and more enmeshed and interdependent, one nation can conquer another simply through the control of the flow of money and goods. A sort of coup by purchase. And suddenly we find ourselves as exiles and prisoners within our own homes and land. Every facet of our lives and our daily survival is placed into the hands of an absentee foreign government. Our ability to buy and sell completely tied to our acquiescence to the demands of foreigners who do not know God. And they have only their own agendas in mind. There's only one remedy and one hope for our condition. Prayerful confession, sincere repentance, and a change of direction back to the ways of God. And then, only then, petitioning Him to see our revived devotion as a reason to show us mercy and forgiveness. Unfortunately, this process isn't going to be like a TV program that in but one hour presents a dilemma then takes us through all the heartache and pain and then it's all happily resolved. We're going to go through great challenges in testing along the way for extended periods of time because the Lord wants to build our faith through perseverance. Well, Solomon's third petition is in verses 35 and 36. And it refers to the remission of the penalty of drought, again, for national sins. So this is the second petition that deals with a national judgment of Israel, the first being subjugation by foreign powers as a punishment, and now it's in the form of lack of rain. These are outlined in the Torah in Leviticus 26.19 and Deuteronomy 11. Leviticus 26.19 I will break the pride you have in your own power. I will make your sky like iron, your soil like bronze. Deuteronomy 11.16 and 17 Be careful not to let yourselves be seduced so that you turn aside serving other gods and worshipping them. If you do, the anger of Adonai will blaze up against you. He will shut up the sky so that there will be no rain. The ground won't yield its produce and you will quickly pass away from the good land Adonai is giving you. Verse 36 again gives instruction in how God operates in such matters. And so explains that the Lord, that because the Lord teaches his followers through punishments, then he also forgives when the people finally realize their sin, they confess. 
they repent, they cease their bad behavior and change direction and return to the ways outlined in the Holy Scriptures. Nowhere do we find, and boy this is key, church, nowhere do we find that simply being the redeemed of God is sufficient reason for the Lord to relent on His punishments due to our transgressions. Now the fourth petition is in verses 37 to 40. And it deals with the matter of plagues such as famine, pestilence, sickness. And these are in response to God's regulations of Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, 21 through 26 says, Yes, if you go against me, you don't listen to me, I will increase your calamities sevenfold according to your sins. I will send wild animals among you. They'll rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, reduce your numbers until your roads are deserted. If in spite of all this, you still refuse my correction, you still go against me, then I too will go against you. And yes, I will strike you seven times over for your sins. I will bring a sword against you which will execute the vengeance of the covenant. You will be huddled inside of your cities. I'll send sickness among you. You will be handed over to the power of the enemy. I will cut off your supply of bread so that ten women will bake bread in one oven and dole out bread by weight. And you will eat, but you won't be satisfied. And of course, the Hebrew word negah is being translated more properly here in 1 Kings as plague and indeed the idea of famine and pestilence and sickness is the sort of thing inflicted upon the Egyptians. Here is yet the third time that a petition is asking for restoration because of nationwide trespasses. Only the first petition so far deals with the sins of individuals. So if by rebelling, Israel is going to behave like Egypt, then they're going to be punished like Egypt. With negah, with plagues. Now, even so, as we move into the second part of the fourth petition, there is an interesting nuance because it deals with the matters of individuals in the midst of national catastrophes. Now that's something that interests me. What is a national sin? Except the sins of many individuals acting in concert. And it will never be that all of these individuals agreed to stop sinning and accept their error. So Solomon asks that as each individual repents or not, God will determine who is sincere and who is not. And then act on an individual by individual basis based upon their own conduct. Based upon their own conduct, not whether they're redeemed or not. 
I don't think there is any more revealing aspect of this mysterious duality in which our Lord deals with mankind than when it comes to redemption. On the one hand, He deals with us each as a unique person. And on the other, He deals with humanity as unique nations of people. Salvation and its attendant forgiveness is person by person. Deliverance from national oppression is a group response. And one of the reasons that Solomon is asking the Lord to respond in this manner is because from it, God's chosen people will learn to fear and obey Him. The fifth petition makes a sharp turn. And it deals not with Israelites, but with foreigners. The word for foreigners in this passage is nokri. It's quite different from the more familiar ger. A nokri is one who is a visitor to Israel and is in no way part of Israel, or by definition do they desire to be. A ger is a foreigner who has attached him or herself to Israel voluntarily. So these nokri that Solomon is praying about are not worshippers of Jehovah, nor are they residents of the promised land. However, because they have heard of the greatness of the God of Israel, and they venture a long distance to come to the temple in Jerusalem to acknowledge Jehovah's holiness and glory, then Solomon is asking that the Lord would even hear their prayers, even though they're not His people. And just like in the earlier petition, when Solomon's reason for asking this is so that Israel will fear and obey God, so it is here that God will hear the prayers of these foreign visitors so that all the Gentile pagan world will know who God is and fear Him. See, this is in perfect alignment with Isaiah 56.7 when God says, I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. King Shlomo's petition on behalf of the foreigners presents a a, a sort of dual-edged sword. It is rightly said by preachers that it is the job of the church to spread the gospel to every distant and remote place on this globe. And while there is joy in that thought, In some ways, the knowledge of the God of Israel and His Son, Yeshua, is going to become a deadly curse. The joy is that many will hear of His greatness and become one of His. The curse is that many others will hear of His greatness and reject it. I often tell groups I speak to that I've done them no favors in informing them 
of the gospel because now they can't plead ignorance before the Lord. They're without excuse if they choose to ignore God's calling to them. The foreigners who come to the temple in Jerusalem and worship Jehovah or at least acknowledge Him as one among many gods or they worship Him but they don't want to be part of His chosen people or they worship Him and they do not see any connection between that and committing themselves to God's ways and commandments. They're dooming themselves to destruction. They're without excuse. Now, King Shlomo's sixth petition to God is in verses 44 and 45, and it has to do with Israel being engaged in war. And when in verse 44 the expression is, no matter which way you send them, it's not speaking of their marching route. Rather, the emphasis is that you send them meaning that Jehovah has ordained that they should go into battle, meaning that this is holy war with the Lord God as their warrior chief. Thus, they must observe the rules of holy war and of the law of harem, the law of spoils of war, if they want victory. And since they are by definition away fighting an enemy, then Solomon's request is that when the soldiers merely pray towards the temple in Jerusalem, from wherever they are, that their prayers will be heard not from inside of the temple, but as it says in verse 45, from heaven. Yet another acknowledgement that God lives in heaven, not in that temple building. This passage is the primary reason for modern Jews having determined that no matter where they are in the world, they need to direct their prayers towards Jerusalem. Of course, the real issue is not Jerusalem the city, but rather the temple that's in the city. Of course, as of now, there is no temple. So the direction of prayers towards Jerusalem contains the thought of remembering their homeland from wherever they are and showing God their desire to once again dwell there. And also of the hope of looking towards the prophesied day when a new temple will arise atop Mount Moriah signaling the coming of Messiah. Well, the seventh and final petition is dealing with Israel's military. And it takes up the case of the army sinning, losing Jehovah's protection and thus also losing the battle. And worse yet, being captured and carried off to foreign soil as prisoners. Now we can only understand the nature of this sinning as having to do with violations of the laws of holy war. And just as Solomon asked for the civil population of Israel as a whole congregation to be forgiven if they sin as a group, sin as a nation, now he asks the same for the army as a, as a group. Now, a group points mainly at its leadership. And this is because obviously 
Not every soldier is going to behave the same way. Some might deliberately ignore God's holy war laws. Others won't. But all will be defeated and taken prisoners due to their leadership. Either fostering or condoning this wrong behavior. So all are going to feel the same consequences. But if while they're still being held captive in a faraway land, the soldiers as a group see they're wrong, meaning the leadership is leading them in a repentant attitude, and then they pray towards the temple and ask for forgiveness, then from heaven God is asked to hear and to act. The word is Shema by showing compassion in influencing their captors to show mercy to these Hebrew soldiers. And one of the reasons that Solomon thinks that God should respond in chesed, loving kindness, towards these repentant soldiers is that they are part of Yehovah's inheritance who God rescued so many centuries earlier from the oppressive hand of Egypt. Verse 52 continues the same thought by asking that God hear the soldiers from wherever they are. Now this may seem like a minor thing to a modern day believer, but to the mind of the ancient Hebrew, this is something they they would hope for, but how much they believed it could happen is, is another matter. And this is because the entire world held to the precept that gods were territorial. They were nationally based. Therefore, if a soldier was carried away captive to a foreign nation, there was no chance for his personal God to even hear him there. Because that God was limited limited to operating within his own territory. See, that's why these soldiers carried their God idols with them. So that if they should be captured... They could pray to that God idol and their God might be able to hear them no matter wherever they went. But it's also why it was common for the victorious army to confiscate the defeated enemy's idols in order to further demoralize them and end all hope. But then verse 23, 53, we'll end with this. Verse 53 says something. Something I wish modern day Jews would remember. Because I've met so many who deflect it or deny it. It is that the Lord makes a distinction between the Hebrews and all other people on this planet. It is the Hebrews who the Lord chose as His inheritance. And that distinction was cemented when Moses was given the covenant on Mount Sinai. But many modern Jews don't want to be God's special people because to their way of thinking, this has brought them generally nothing but trouble and destruction for centuries. They don't want to be thought of as exceptional. They don't want to be seen as set apart. They just want to be like everybody else. As Tevye says in that fabulous film, Fiddler on the Roof, 
when his Jewish family and local community has suffered from yet another indignation as a result of Russia's anti-Semitic bigotry and persecution. He says, God, I know, I know, we're your chosen people. But once in a while, couldn't you choose someone else? (laughs) We'll finish up chapter 8 next week.